Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. I have a very special guest. I've got some PR marketing professional and award-winning author Jade Gers with us. Jade, how you doing today, man? Hey, Frank. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Now, now, Jade, you've been in motorsports for oh, probably. Close to three decades now, yeah, right? You've, a little uh, over that, yeah. A little over, yes. You worked with Anheuser Busch. You were the you were the PR guy for uh, uh, Dale Jr. You worked with uh, Mazda. You worked with Ilmore. Um, you've worked with uh, Kevin Harvick some. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've you've penned some books here. The book Beast is a is a must read for any IndyCar fan, especially of the kart era. A very popular book. Uh, you've penned um, a book about uh, Dale Jr. called Driver number eight, and you've also co-authored autobiographies with both Daryl Waltrip and Dale Jr. Now, yeah. your your latest project is you've uh, penned the um, autobiography co-authored with the late Don Andretti, and that book will be released, I believe, in September. Is that correct? Yeah, we we have a, a quote official release date of September first, but uh, honestly, we're we're doing pretty well on the printing and. My gut feeling is it's going to appear before that. Uh, my goal had always been for it to come out before the Indy 500. And sadly, that's probably going to come true because yeah, the Indy keep... 500 has been so delayed. Yeah, yeah. So now, when you were growing up, when you were young, were you, were you, have you been a motorsports fan all your life, or did you, with your work into marketing, kind of um, move into to auto racing as a as a profession, and then kind of grow a love for it there? No, I, I've been pretty much uh, a fan and obsessed with it. Uh, I can almost give you the exact date uh, because I was three years old and uh, my mom went into labor with my little sister and they weren't they didn't know what to do with me. So I ended up going to my aunt's and she and my grandpa ended up going to the dirt track in Topeka, Kansas. And uh, I was hooked ever since. That was uh, that was it for me. I think at that age, I probably enjoyed it because I got, would get a free snow cone every night at the track. But uh, it uh, really turned into uh, something that I was passionate about and something that I've been incredibly lucky lucky to have been involved in for so long. Now, your some of your early jobs right out of college, you know, I, obviously you, you studied marketing and PR. Were, were they in auto racing? Did you kind of have to work your way into it or, or did something uh, neat fall somewhat. in your lap? No, I I grew up uh, around the auto business. My dad owned uh, auto dealerships, but uh, uh, really always uh, enjoyed racing, but never really thought what, you know, wow, I could do this as a career. Um, So I I worked for a company that produced videos. I worked in retail. I managed a music store. I also have a background in music and then uh, my hometown, I mentioned earlier, Topeka, Kansas, they built uh, Heartland Park, Topeka, and uh, I couldn't believe that suddenly this, this major facility with road course and drag strip uh, was open, and it's a long story, but I ended up working there, and uh, the rest, <laughs> rest is history. Fantastic, man. Nothing, nothing wrong with doing what you love and being around what you love all the time. So, so now I want to talk about the new book. Uh, The title is Racer, uh, John Andretti, as told to Jay Gerst. Now, you you were the impetus for this project. You pitched this to John. Am I correct? Yeah. um, I had met John for the first time uh, in 2004. Uh, I was working with Budweiser and Dale Jr., and Dale Jr. was burnt uh, pretty badly in a sports car accident. So uh, DEI brought in John as the backup driver, 
and uh, for Pocono, uh, race at Pocono. And I really enjoyed getting to know him, and, and it was clear he was a great storyteller and seemed to remember all the fun details of all of his stories. And so that's, that's kind of where we first connected. And then, uh, sadly, he was uh, diagnosed with colon cancer in uh, early 2017. And I, I followed it closely, but, uh, I, I, you know, I wouldn't say he and I were close friends. We would occasionally uh, stay in touch. Um, I wish I thought of it, but uh, in late uh, 2019, it was like, uh, you know, the, the proverbial light bulb went on. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this this is someone that I really need to uh, uh, to do a, a book with because, uh, you know, great family, great storyteller, great life. So uh, I reached out to him and immediately he said, oh, this would be great. Uh, this can really do some good to bring more uh, awareness to uh, for people to get uh, colonoscopies and colon cancer screening, and uh, that's that's where it started. And uh, we uh, ended up working. Uh, I would go to his home here in uh, Charlotte, the Lake Lake Norman area. Uh, I would go up and see him, and we'd go to the basement and turn on the recorder and kind of just uh he'd tell stories and i'd ask questions <laughs> and uh some days uh we would go for hours and hours and uh it just for me just like just as a fan it was great but uh as a writer it's been it was really rewarding he's was such a good storyteller such a good guy that uh it's been great that i've been able to you know put this together and sadly after he passed worked with his wife, Nancy, and his son, Jarrett, uh, on putting the, the package together with uh, uh, the, the printer and or excuse me, with the publisher. And, uh, you know, really excited for it to come out. And I think people will really enjoy it. Oh, I'm sure they will. I mean, I've always thought of John as a very remarkable human being. You know, I mean, he was he was a great race car driver. Yeah, but just a very remarkable human being. And I I had some interaction with John. The first time I met him was back in the 90s. I was, like, doing some PR work with Hutch Strickland and McDonald's, and uh, he was driving for Cale Yarborough at the time. Uh, but the one thing I always remember about John is that it wouldn't matter, even on his worst day, you know, if he just wrecked the car or, or you know, blew a piston or someone, or he just stubbed his toe, if somebody somebody came up to him and, and wanted to engage him, the biggest smile would come across his face. And it, and it was genuine. It was never fake. He was just always happy to interact with people. And, um, you know, I think that that also leads us to um, his uh, his his charitable work. And I understand that a percentage of the uh, profits from the sale of, of this book are going to uh, Racing for Riley, which is his favorite charity. Yeah. Yeah. Ten percent of all proceeds. Uh, and it was something that he was very passionate about with uh, for almost 25 years. Race for Riley was a program that he started and uh in his lifetime, they raised more than uh, $4.85 million for uh, the Riley Children's Hospital there in Indianapolis. And uh, there's a lot in the book about why he did that or, or what it meant to him. And it, it's really – I tell people this is a book about racing, but honestly it's about family and friends and about how we treat each other better. Uh, you know, with so much tumult in the world, it really has a very good meaning, very uh, positive uh, message. Yeah, I think a lot, a, a lot of to hear John's philosophy. I think a lot of folks could use a very, very positive read and a positive message right now. Now, 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 yeah. Seth, Louise, and I, we all write to a to, to a very, you know, varying degree. Um, but uh, I'm just really interested in, in the writing, in the writing process. Yeah. Um, and so you're, so when you're co-author, I can write. I just choose. <laughs> oh, Richard, I Richard, like I always, I always leave you out. But uh, now you're as a co-author, right? That's several steps up on the literary ladder from, say, say a ghostwriter. So how much of your input is in in some of these books? You know, the John one and the the ones with Dale and Daryl. Yeah, it, it it varies. Uh, the the books I did with with Dale Jr. Uh, I was this P, uh, PR guy 
for years. And so a lot of that was put together because I was literally there with him or, you know, in the room or in the vehicle when, you know, when whatever was happening. So that was put together a lot by just my historical notes from the, uh, you know, his, his couple of seasons there early in his NASCAR career. The one with Daryl was great fun because, uh, I was always at the track, and he would was announcing for Fox. And in that era, they also did the what was then the Bush series. And uh, so my agreement was one af- one hour after the Bush series, I would meet Daryl at his bus. His his bus driver would cook us a meal, and we would sit and and talk. And I would record uh, uh, that. Uh, it, it's uh, similar. Similar with John, I, I should probably add it up. My guess is I probably have 45 to 50 hours of interviews uh, with him uh, that I recorded. And then it was a whole lot of transcribing and then taking all those and putting them in a, a narrative. The, the goal is to use as much of his words as he spoke them. I, and I've been thrilled that his family have agreed that when you read the book, you hear John's voice, you, you know, you really sense uh, his voice and how he would tell stories. So as a writer, when someone tells me that, that's about the highest, highest praise uh, is that they can hear John when they, they read the book. Yeah, that is quite a compliment. Now, as much as I like to dominate the interview with all the questions, uh, Seth, Seth would, uh, <laughs> Seth would like to uh, chime in. Seth, go right ahead. Well, since you were just talking about uh, being able to hear John as you're reading, essentially, is there a specific quote uh, that stuck with you that you think will stick with readers? Um, it, you know, there, there's a lot of them. He, he had such a dry sense of humor that a lot of his best work was was sort of short quips about um, it, one of my favorites is he talked about driving injured and then comparing that to when he was diagnosed with cancer and he said pain is when is just your body telling you that it's alive I, I found that very interesting um, he, he's very sil- philosophic about his racing career, um, and he, he really spends a lot of time uh, talking about his family. Dad is Uncle Mario. Great uh, after about he and, and Michael Andretti growing up as best friends, and um, it, it just the way he tells stories about the people that that he loved is is really a neat. Uh, piece of it so um I, i'm drawing blank on other quotes right now i'm, I'm uh, uh trying to think of others but uh but anyway that uh, that's uh a big part of it for for me was that uh he weaves in the uh the great stories about racing with uh stories about family and you know being around his uncle mario and all of that so it, it's it, it adds, I think, a lot of depth to the book rather than chapter one, I won this race, chapter two, well, I crashed <laughs> in this one. And there, there, there's a lot of that, too. There's a lot of uh, details from his career, but uh, it just it, it just became a joy to, to put it together and uh, finish it uh, just because it has, uh, I think, such emotional resonance. So it, uh, it was great. Now, I know one of the major takeaways from this is for people to go and get a colonoscopy, go and get checked, check it for Andretti. But Mm -hmm. is there a specific uh, takeaway that you hope readers uh, will have about John as a person? Um, Well, I've already talked about the way he talks about the value of his family, but in dealing with his sickness or dealing with cancer um, he was very open with me uh, which I was was glad about about what he went through whether that was some of the just the unbelievable surgeries that he had to go through or um, you know chemotherapy you know he says most people go four to six times and they they can't do anymore and 
he actually had 24 rounds of chemotherapy. So it, it's just stunning uh, with the way that he dealt with that and the way he didn't let it let him get, get it down. He never worried about uh, why me. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Uh, that kind of thing. So um, I just, you know, I would sit there listening to him talk about this stuff and was just amazed and thrilled of the, you know, the aspects that he shared with me that, uh, you know, that certainly appear in the book. Now, my last question, uh, at least on John Andretti, uh, was there anything that he regretted as far as that would be in the book? Uh, it regretted as far as sharing too much or, or regretted uh, in his life? Whether on track or sharing too much. Well, uh, he early on established that he was going to be as open and honest um, as, as he could. Um, and so I appreciated that. And um, sadly, as we reached the point of the book, you know, starting to take form and come together. Um, he had a really rough last couple of months. So uh, he really only got about 80% through uh, of the manuscript um, until he just sadly wasn't well enough to continue. Um, and he didn't really object to anything. He had me change a couple of times. He used a few too many curse words, <laughs> which I thought was great. And uh, a few others where uh, he just, uh, for instance, we removed particular driver's names from certain anecdotes. But uh, honestly, he was very open and, you know, really wanted to tell the full story. So, um, but I had asked him about, did he have regrets in his career? Because he's one of these guys that, that would drive anything. And, you know, he won in NASCAR, IndyCar. He won the 24 hours of Daytona, uh, raced at Le Mans with his uh, uncle Mario and cousin Michael. You know, he raced NHRA top fuel cars. I mean, this guy literally would drive it all. And I had asked him about that. Did the fact that he changed so much hurt his career? If he had to do it over again, would he, um, you know, would he do so? And, he said, no, he said, if I had that ability to, you know, to change things, I would change my life by going to get a colonoscopy at age 45 instead of waiting until it was too late. So um, so that was his reply to my direct question about, you know, regrets in his career. Now, Louise, uh, you've got a question or two. Yeah. Speaking of like all the, the multiple disciplines that he raised when what and you're he told you by chance kind of like his favorite racing moment because one of the things that came up to mind is looking at 1991 when he won in Australia a surfer's paradise then of course the 500 would all the Andretti's Michael John Mario and Jeff ran and then after the 500 he got a podium with Michael and Mario in Milwaukee does he have yeah, like a the, favorite of it? well the 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 podium of all Andretti's at, at Milwaukee is something that, that he brought up and spoke a lot of. Um, I also worked with um, Michael and Mario on forwards for the, um, so they have a segment in the first of the book along with Richard Petty and AJ Foyt 
which you know that's four pretty good uh, pretty good guys um and michael mario and john all talked about how meaningful it was that day at milwaukee to have a you know all the andrettis filling the podium i will say john and mario both insist that they won instead of michael apparently there were some scoring issues that day so uh they both insisted that uh, they should have been on the top step instead of Michael, but uh, um, it, it's it's very fascinating. You talked about um, all four Andretti's, uh, Michael's younger uh, brother, uh, Jeff. Uh, there were four of them in the Indy 500 for a couple of years, and that meant a lot. Um, the It's funny, you mentioned Australia, his first IndyCar win, it, he said it was weird because for some reason he was in a bad mood that day and he got up on the podium and he said, uh, Rick Mears and, and Bobby Rahal were up there with him and they kept telling him, come on, man, enjoy it. You got to enjoy this. So he said it really only sunk in later how cool it was to, to win there in Australia. But the single victory that, that he sort of, got the most pride was winning uh, at Martinsville for Richard Petty and Petty Enterprises. Um, he talked about how much that meant to him, how much it meant to Richard and the team. And so, um, you know, the family stuff is very prominent, but I think on track, he would probably would have said the, the Martinsville win and being able to give Richard Petty a ride to victory lane. So um, a lot of that uh, store, those stories are definitely in the book. And a follow up to that, when it comes to writing a, a book, especially an autobiography at a tell all, what, what is kind of like in the mindset you have the process of doing so trying to get these tell all stories, guys, you mentioned it's about 40 to 50 hours of recording. Just, Describe up the process from an author's perspective, because I've always been intrigued about that. Yeah, it's, you know, it varies. Um, I mentioned I did a book with Daryl Waltrip, and Daryl would get wound up and start telling stories. And I, I would think, oh, this is a great story. This is going to be really good. And then uh, I would transcribe it, and then I would meet him the next Saturday for the next round and he'd say, oh, yeah, last week, that story, I can't tell that until so-and-so dies. <laughs> <laughs> so he kind of edited uh, edited, and, and I always told him, I said, man, there's some great stuff, uh, you know, still in the raw transcripts. But uh, but that was that was how I worked with Daryl. Um, but John, John was very open. There was very little that. Um, like I said, that he, he, you know, he really didn't read through and say, "Oh, we can't say this or that." It was very small, minor things. Um, but from my standpoint, uh, you talk about a tell-all. Um, you know, I, I've been in the sport thirty years, and I, I believe I have a good reputation. I have uh, uh, what I think is uh, integrity. So my goal is never to go out to, you know, to trash anybody or to, you know, share gossip and things like that. Um, and so it, it, the, the challenge is to, um, when you work with someone like John or Daryl, is to take their stories and essentially put them in a narrative that makes sense or is that entertaining. Um you know, versus just uh, uh, hours and hours of, of stories. So um, so that that's always my goal. Um, not that I don't love good gossip here and there, but uh, I, I've never had the intent of, of writing anything that would, would hurt anyone. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I would always defer to my, uh, you know, co-writer to uh, – to help me know where that line is based on their comfort level. So I don't know if that answered your question, but, uh, no, you didn't. Oh, good. Because that's one of the things when it comes to the writing aspects, when they try to, when I focus on those race reports for Motorsports Tribune, or even eventually some, they do a memoir about my journey so far and vice versa. It's kind of like figure out how other people approach these kind of stories, especially for a public, 
for a publication like yours that you've done over the years with Daryl, Dale Jr., and John? Yeah, you, you know, and it's interesting. Uh, in in the case of John, um, we had uh, certain members of the family read the read the manuscript uh, again to make sure that they would approve it, and uh, um, his mom was worried that he would have made fun of her and that, and that kind of thing. But uh, <laughs> um, but I, I tell people, you know, this is John's story. Uh, when you write a race report, you, you stick to um, the facts or you stick to what happened or who crashed on what lap and, you know, who won and all of that. Whereas this is uh, the, the telling of this person's story. Um, you know, my role is to help them tell that story in the most entertaining way possible. It's not really my job to um, you know, play devil's advocate or, you know, in, in, insert my own views or things on it. Um, and so that that's very important to me that you know, when people read it, um, you know, I guess my writing kind of has some style and trends that they may recognize. But the voice, the the, the voice driving it page after page is, is John Andretti. Now, now, Richard, you've got a question as well. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about uh, Dale Jr. there because I think you, you say you've written two books on, on Dale. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you, you've worked with him for a number of years there. And, um, you know, I've sort of, my background is in formula racing in Europe. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I sort of got into working in NASCAR about five years ago. And a number of the guys I worked with uh, worked with uh, Dale Jr. at uh, DEI. So you probably, mm -hmm. probably know some of those guys. But, um, Absolutely. He obviously, he's now, um, I think he's on the ballot for the um, Hall of Fame next year, is it, I think? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, I was just wondering, yeah, looking at it from the outside, um, which I did for a long time, do you think that Dale finds the sort of family name a help or a hindrance to his career? Um, it, it can be both, and actually... John Andretti kind of has that same thing. Yeah. You know, you're, you're the nephew or you're the son of a legend, of an icon. And I think early on, um, it, it must have been tough for Dale Jr., but I think he also learned early on that he, he should be his, he could be his own person. That he, yeah. he, he knew that if he tried to drive like his dad or tried to, you know, just basically be a carbon copy, that that, that wasn't the best best way to approach it um and and I, I always tell a small anecdote that i think tells a lot about dale jr's personality when he was young and, and started coming to the track with his dad and then when he started driving late models in his late teens people would rush up and they would want his autograph and he thought well they're just asking because of who my dad is you know what what my last name is I want them to be able to ask based upon who I am as a person and what I mm -hmm. achieved on the track. And I, I think that hit him very young. And I, I think that really um, sort of shows even now in his personality, uh, you know, he's not uh, a replica of his dad. He's his own man. And no. I, I admire that uh, from him, but uh, you know, it's funny because that was when I was brought in, uh, again, really for his entire Budweiser era, the red number eight car. Um, Budweiser was a perfect sponsor because they told me and they told him, just be real. Be yourself. Don't be yeah. like the the other drivers where, you know, you get on mic and you just read a list of 10 sponsors, <laughs> which which I hate. Yeah. Uh, and and so he had a supportive sponsor. Uh, that that really wanted him to be his own person and not be some sort of uh, you know polished <laughs> salesman, yeah. I guess. <laughs> and it's interesting you, you mentioned that because it's like you know some of the engineers that I've worked with were uh, with Dale at DEI, and, mm -hmm. and some of the stories they tell was, you know, he was one of the first guys that was really seriously into the concept of like a driver doing data analysis. Mm -hmm. You know, they were talking about he'd come back, for, they'd be flying back from a test somewhere or they'd be in the hotel or his, his um, 
uh, you know, trailer, uh, you know, after a test day, and you'd be sat there, you know, streaming through the data. And at that time, I guess this was like early 2000s, you know, no other driver did that. Um, yeah. Or very few did. And it was almost that went again, as you said, against the public perception of him. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, to a certain extent, I'm sure he had to play up to this idea a little bit of what the public expected from mm-hmm. the sports point of view. But also, you, you know, he wanted to try and carve his own mark in it. And some of the stories, you know, about him being the guy that would sit there and ask the questions of the engineers and really look at data and, and try and gain advantages from that. So sort it of almost went against a little bit of the public image that maybe some people had of him. Yeah. You know, you know it's interesting you say that because I, I had come from – uh, being with Ilmore Engineering in uh, in IndyCar before I worked with Dale Jr. In IndyCar, uh, the drivers were much more involved because of all the telemetry and all the data that sure. that, that is always streaming on the car. Whereas NASCAR, you, you know, you're <laughs> to this day you're very restricted on what you can, uh, you know, what data you can have, you know, during an official event. Um, yeah. I, I so I know he was very fascinated by that. He also he, – he goes way back um, as a, a computer guy. He's very, very sharp about computers. So to him, the data was, was fascinating. He loved to you know, really combine what the data said versus what he was feeling in the car. And uh, so yeah, I always found that uh, to be pretty, pretty interesting to uh, see him do that kind of thing. Yeah. So now – we're talking about uh, Dale Jr. and you and he, you and he were, oh, you know, connected at the hip for what seven years? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and you and you managed to to write the book um, in the red that, that chronicles the um, mm-hmm. the entire 2001 season. Um, now, yeah, I, I've done some of the PR work uh, with NASCAR, mind you, at a at a smaller scale than than the type of things where you do. Now, I'm not know that's a very it's a very time-consuming, sometimes thankless job, um, but I'm just wondering how did yes. did you were you like planning this book through that whole season um, and, and try to squeeze it in well, in your off time, or, or was it something that you transcribed later? Well, it's interesting because I had I had just mentioned I'd been working with Ilmore and Mercedes Benz, and I really learned a lot from Mercedes Benz, and they are great about taking their history and helping it infuse their current, mm-hmm. uh, you know, their, their brand image. So, <laughs> I, you know, I'd been immersed in that. So I, that's my state of mind coming over to work with Budweiser and Dale Jr. So my proposal to Budweiser is, you know, they'll never again be Dale Jr.'s first Daytona 500 or his first victory, even though at that point we would, we couldn't have expected it to turn out with as many wins that first year's boss as as it turned out. And I tried to convince them that uh, that reality TV was the new thing and that we should do uh, sort of a documentary style. And I'm afraid we were just ahead of our time uh, at that point in 2000. It wasn't as big as it is now, so no one wrote the check. But I continued to keep uh, all kinds of notes. I had a different notebook each race weekend, and everything we did and everything went into that, the chatter on the radio. Uh, and after a couple months, I had a big stack, and he and I sat there, and I said, well, maybe we can do a book. <laughs> and so it was as simple as that. It was originally uh, my idea was something completely different, but we had all this material, and uh, so that's what led to um, – driver number eight and it's a very sim- similar process for the the in the red um that is kind of the follow-up from the 2001 season all right now seth you'd like to jump back in yes uh since we're talking about junior now uh, what would be the most memorable race that you worked with junior Ooh, there were a lot of them <laughs> <laughs> um Actually, it probably would go back to 2000 and the uh, the All Star race. Um, it was just it was such a great win, and it was just this this sort of just maybe the the ultimate height of the original Junior Mania, as they called it. Um, but 
then the team, you know, we had a great time. The team was spot on. Junior was was driving great. And then his father ran across and, and joined everyone up on the victory stand. And I know that meant a lot to Dale. Uh, and then as he and I were led up the stands to go to the, the media center up top, uh, the press box, we were stopped and told uh, about the bridge collapse. And so we had gone from just this, you know, excitement and, and ecstasy to suddenly just, oh, my God, you know, you just dropped to the floor. Um, and so it, it definitely was uh, an, an evening that had a little bit of everything. But uh, I, I so I guess if I look back at all of them, uh, that one is probably, uh, for me anyway, the most memorable. And I, I know it meant a lot for Junior for his dad to come join him and the team, uh, you know, on the, on the victory podium. Now I know junior wrote his own book, uh, or co-wrote it, uh, recently. Uh, yeah. did you give him any advice on that or, uh, have you ever thought about doing a follow-up to driver number eight? Yeah. The, the book in the red really is the follow-up because it, it's, it takes so it takes up the next year. It, it basically follows driver number eight, picks up where it left off. Um, and I, I had always been willing and anxious to do another, and but I always held off. I, I kept telling him, "When you're ready, you let me know." Uh, I reached out. Would have been twenty twenty eleven. And uh, he said, look, I'm just too busy. If you, you want to go ahead and write it, that that's great. So he was fine with me um, writing um, the in the red. Um, and then the one uh, about his uh, concussions, he did with uh, Ryan McGee at the end. And uh, Ryan is somebody that I really respect and admire. And so uh, I guess if anybody else is going to write with Dale Jr., <laughs> I was not upset that it was uh, was Ryan McGee. So, so yeah, Jr. and Ryan worked on the uh, the uh, book. I've, I've gone blank on the, the title, but basically where he shared – what he went through with his uh, concussions and the struggle with that. Uh, speaking of speaking of Dale Jr., I know you mentioned about the reality documentary S that they were planning. It reminded me of also a different one around 2000 that was like MTV did one on Dale Jr. at the tail end of 2000. You recall? Yeah. Oh, that yeah. time period. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we. Um, Again, Budweiser was a sponsor, so they said, look, here's the audience we want to reach. And this audience, they read Rolling Stone magazine, uh, they read Playboy magazine, and they watch MTV. So that was really – that became my goal or my – that was – they said, you know, it's up to you. So we really approached them all with uh, – you know, with a lot of energy and, and all of that. And the very first one was MTV Cribs. And um, we had scheduled it uh, long before his father's accident. So it took place. He decided he wanted to do it. Uh, it was about two weeks after his dad had died. Um, and uh, if, if you've ever seen it, people remember that the garage door opens and he drives his race car out of his garage. And we did some other fun stuff, too. But that really established a good relationship with uh, with MTV. They did uh, True Life, I'm a Race Car Driver. And it was originally was going to feature a lot of different drivers. And in the end, uh, it was mostly uh, Tony Stewart and Dale Jr. I think they came out as the most compelling uh, and interesting drivers. Uh, and then from there... I'm drawing blank. They came and spent a weekend with him in Atlanta, and I can't think of what that show was called. But we didn't get nearly the attention for that as we did for the MTV Cribs and, and True Life. So it really established him and NASCAR uh, to a, a whole new audience. So we were thrilled to be a part of, of all that. Going back to in the IndyCar side of things, when I think of the 90s time period when it comes to Penske and the Merce Elmore Mercedes time period, I think of it as kind of like the serious establishment, but also the absolute roller coaster ride from the highest of highs in 94, then 95 onwards. It was just 
and weird time period for that entity. Yeah, and uh, the, the 94, the, the top secret engine, Mercedes engine, uh, I wrote about that in the book Beast. Um, Beast basically is the, the secret story of how that came about, how they did it in secret, uh, and then what happened when uh, the rules changed for the following year, for 1995. Um it's funny because uh, everyone was thrilled to talk to me about 1994 because they had won the pole and they won the race. Uh, I'm not sure I would get such an enthusiastic response from 1995 stories, but uh, it, uh, it's been long enough. Uh, you never know. That might be something that I can uh, look into in the future because it is very compelling. It's not a uh, the same story of glory for Penske, but uh, – it's very, very uh, compelling as far as what, what went on that month uh, when they didn't qualify. Now, Richard, you'd like to jump in again? Yeah, I have uh, a, a quick question. Um, you mentioned there when Budweiser got involved, they had a, a target audience there. Um, you know, it would be interesting to get your thoughts, having been so closely involved in the PR and the marketing side of, of NASCAR and, and the drivers, where you think nascar's target audience is going you know who do you think they're appealing to in the next five ten years going forward well I, i'll tell you i think a lot of what has happened the last couple of weeks um will hopefully play a role in being, uh, being accepting by a wider audience mm -hmm. um and one of the things we tried to do with Dale Jr. is to break out of that, uh, is to do, you know, you mentioned uh, MTV, and we, we wanted him on uh, as many different unusual outlets as possible. Um, and so that was always our goal is to widen that, that demographic or make NASCAR appealing at that time. Um, they – they were playing rock music on the bumpers in and out of commercials versus country and westerns, and Junior yeah. was thrilled with that. I mean, it, it's such a simple thing, but it was part of our philosophy: is that you know we want to appeal to a wide array of people. And we ended up doing uh, we did a cool photo shoot with Ludacris and some other bands, uh, rock bands, rappers, <laughs> and all that. Um, and it, it's purely because. You know, Dale Jr., uh, he loved all kinds of music, and so that was, you know, that was easy for us to, you know, get him hooked up on that kind of stuff. So yeah. now uh, with where they're at, it's going to take time. It's not an overnight sure. thing, and, you know, we're seeing all the controversy this, this week. But in yeah. the long run, um, the way NASCAR will survive is by expanding their audience, not just to keep drilling down on that same, you know, group mm -hmm. that's been with them for 30 years or however long. Yeah, and it, it's interesting. You look at the um, news and the media coverage of, of NASCAR. You know, at the end of the season, you know, once the champion has been decided and all that sort of stuff, you know, probably that will be the, up to now anyway, we don't know what's going to happen in the next six months, but the sort yeah. of the third, the tertiary level of, of news reporting, you know, the first one obviously being everything we've seen in the last couple of weeks with Bubba Wallace and the like, mm -hmm. and then the Ryan Newman accident at Daytona uh, the start of the year, you know, both Ryan's accident and and the Bubba stories have been, you know, front page news on the BBC in the UK. And I've had mm -hmm. friends of mine from the UK contact me on both of those scenarios. So it, it's interesting how, you know, NASCAR still has that, the actual racing, if you like, still isn't its primary selling topic. Yeah, it's the big accidents and it's the personalities and it's the controversy and it's everything else that goes with, it. you know, I've talked on this on this show before, you know, you go back to, you know, the 95 or sorry, 2015 season, you know, who won the championship? Well, I people would have to sort of, oh, I'm not sure, but, you know, <laughs> who had the big accident at Daytona in the July race? Oh, that was Austin Dillon. You know, people mm -hmm. could tell you that in a heartbeat. You know, whereas actually who won a race or who did this or who did that and the racing perspective is not as memorable to the general public at least yeah. than, you know, some of the rating statistics. Yeah, you know, I, I, I have thought of a lot about that kind of thing over the over many years. Uh, I, I tell kind of a funny story about my ex-wife. Uh, she thought racing was 
kind of stupid when we first met and we're going out, but uh, every year I would go to the Indy 500. So I told her, you know, go with me, see it in person and see what you think. So yeah. I took her, took her to the driver's meeting and she suddenly found that these goofy race car drivers, that some were really very handsome. <laughs> and, uh, so, so the the next day in the race, suddenly she had three or four drivers that that yep. she cheered for, and yep. one of her drivers won. And and she's not a huge fan, but it made her somewhat of a, a racing fan. And yeah. it, it's it's the similar concept of uh, you know you've got to develop a connection in some way, shape, or form. It's why when you go to your grocery store, they're sampling cookies or whatever. You you got to get them to try it first. Not everybody's going to buy it, but you're, yep. you're going to increase your cookie sales by yeah. getting getting it in the hands of people. So, I mean, th those oh, are two yeah. very simpleton examples, but that's always how I've viewed it. Is oh, uh, there's any doubt? Yeah, no. And you think you you know, in, and you know, TV audience figures are are, are, a, are a strange number, but you know, you look at the, the was it? I think. This year, the first race post Daytona was was Vegas, wasn't it? They changed the calendar, and I'm sure they had more viewers than they would have done because of Ryan Newman's crash. And people, oh, yeah. I want to watch this. You know, is this going to yeah. happen again? You know, every yeah. the crashes. You know, as horrible as it is to say. Yeah. Um, you know, that, <coughs> that is a huge, a huge part of the sport. And um, yeah, it, it, it's 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 very interesting. You know, even my wife's the same. She doesn't have, never had much interest really in in racing, but. Um, you know, when I was working in, in Europe, we went to a, a test. I was working for the Williams Formula One team, and we went for a test, and Valtteri Bottas was driving. And we go around the garage, and she's like, oh, how's Valtteri doing now? Every race, you know, we watch on TV. Where is he? What's he doing? Because yeah. as you say, they make that connection. And That's right. It's about getting people out there, you know. Um, one thing I used to love doing is going to the uh, World Rally in mm -hmm. Wales, in the UK, you know. And I thought, oh, God, my wife's not going to do it. You stood up there. It's like 40 degrees. It's raining. You get covered in mud. Oh, God. Oh, I'm not going to And she loves it. She loves it. And we actually, you know, a couple of times we've actually flown back from the U.S. to the U.K. just for that event. You know, she, oh, and it's, great. as you say, it's about breaking that down and, mm -hmm. and getting in there. And it's interesting how. You know, you, 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 the modern PR thing, I think, in at the moment, it, you know, you almost get these sort of bland, monotone, sort of almost like voice recorders, don't you, as you mentioned earlier, <laughs> yes. and they were very conscious about not doing that. Yes. And you need to make that connection. You need to have that sort of um, – and, how, you know, the events of the last two weeks – Probably have alienated some fans, but hopefully it's brought a lot, lot more in than it than it has alienated. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. You know, I think auto racing in general, it, it doesn't resonate with young people like it once did, and 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 I think no. that uh, you know to to the point that you, you both made uh, about taking your wife to the racetrack. Uh, my wife is the same way. She will not watch a race with me on TV, but she looks forward to the Indy 500 every year. And we always have the best time, and she and you know she knows who to cheer for. She knows all the drivers, but she won't sit and watch a race with me on TV. Yeah. So in, in a sense, uh, you know, I feel <laughs> like like NASCAR in particular um, has been really thriving due to those billion dollar contracts with both Fox and NBC that are set to run out in the next couple of years, and they're not putting enough focus on that local activation uh, to get folks in the seats. At the venues, because yeah. that's that's how you really um, draw new fans. I you know I, I grew up a Formula One guy, sports car guy, IndyCar guy. Um, I, I got hooked on NASCAR when I first went to a NASCAR race in the late '80s at Martinsville, and and I've been watching NASCAR ever since. Otherwise, yeah. I never would have paid attention to it. Uh, but but going going to the track, yeah, and I just yeah, feel like sure. that's where. That's where the sport needs to go is getting more people to the track yeah. to to get them hooked. Well, mm -hmm. here's a here's a here's a question for you from the PR side, the marketing side. And again, we've discussed this on the show in previous weeks and months. Um, you know, you say taking people to track. Well, what about taking that to the people? You know, having inner city races like you do in IndyCar and Toronto, and I mean, we did have them in Baltimore, but and, and some of those places actually take the sport into the you know into. I mean, they had a Formula One track plan for New York. I'm sure that could be resurrected for an Indi for a NASCAR race. 
or you know you probably couldn't get a nascar around long beach but somewhere like that you know <laughs> take it into the city centers do you think that would be more appealing because at the end of the day it's these are some of the world's fastest billboards you know would you think that would appeal more to sponsors to have it the sport in these bigger cities than somewhere like pocono which is in the middle of nowhere yeah i i <clears throat> excuse me it, it is interesting because you have uh as an example uh i, I did a lot of work uh for several years for mazda their u.s headquarters are uh in irvine california so the Long Beach race was incredibly important to them uh, because it was their, you know, their opportunity to bring all of their employees and all of that. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's the same way for companies <clears throat> that use their sponsorship to bring guests and clients and all that in. And certainly the bigger cities, you have more of an opportunity to, you know, choose from a wider array. Um, I don't know. I, I I'm mixed on NASCAR on a street circuit. Uh, <laughs> they uh, they do pretty you well. You have to make sure they all at least one finished, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I do love them at Watkins Glen and and the uh, oh, I still want to call it the Bush Series because I work for Anheuser Busch, but <laughs> at Xfinity Series. You know, their race at Road Road America is very entertaining. So yeah, as is yeah, their race um, at Mid Ohio, it's another good good uh, xfinity yeah race. oh yeah. that's right yeah yeah so um you know it, it's funny because it, it's I, sometimes i do interviews and i <laughs> say things and i think well that's a very simpleton answer and you always got to be careful of people with uh, simple answers to complex issues but uh i i feel like the nascar management and leadership now is very open-minded they're uh, you know more aggressive on making changes and and uh you know it's early in the game we'll see how it turns out but just for me purely as a fan i uh you know i'm encouraged so we'll see what happens all right so jay yeah. you've uh obviously right now the biggest thing on your plate is promoting the new book um but i'm just wondering what's next for you do you have another another project uh in the back of your mind there another couple of projects um Nothing I can talk about. Right, <laughs> uh, thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but I I have been looking for my next book uh, topic. I'm I've been in racing a long time, and I'm no longer of the age where traveling full time on the NASCAR circuit seems fun. So, the book writing right now is a little more up to my speed, and and uh, so uh, hopefully some things will come together, and I'll have a fun new project here very soon but uh uh but I, I i enjoy doing the books and hopefully uh once uh, john's book is out everybody will get a chance to take a look and learn about uh, quite an amazing guy all right so now that book is published by octane press and it's going to be i know it's going to be available on amazon on both hardcover and kindle what are, what other outlets can we uh yes can we uh, look to see this book uh, avail available for purchase? The the generic saying is wherever you may find books. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, <laughs> we we really hope that uh, bookstores come back strong once the you know the virus is a little more contained. Um, and uh, but uh, right now, uh, Octane Press you can order direct from them. That probably means you're going to get the book. Uh, as early as possible, um, and Amazon, you can order it there, and they're doing better. They they really were slow on books for a while because they were shipping uh, high priority things uh, uh, because of the the virus and and all of that. But uh, uh, I'd I'd say if you've got a favorite bookstore, uh, you know, help support them, and uh, you can certainly pre-order it uh, anywhere. But uh, Certainly, uh, Octane Press or Amazon will have it for you uh, right now. All right. Now I know you did it. You did a special event. Uh, I believe it was last night. You did. You did a Zoom Zoom yes. call with uh, both Mario and uh, Jared Andretti. So uh, just talk to me a little about a little bit about that. I didn't. I had to work last night, so I didn't get a chance to to kind of dial in. But uh, tell me how that went. Yeah. Well, we we wanted to do something for uh, the big fans and for the people who ordered the book early 
Uh, and so we, we kind of were trying to think of ways to get the fans involved. And we came up with this idea of inviting everyone who pre-ordered the book uh, to join us on Zoom. And we did that last night. It was uh, Mario Andretti. Uh, John's son, Jarrett, who's a racer, uh, both sprint cars and road cars, uh, and myself. And then our host was uh, Dylan Welsh, who's uh, an uh, up-and-coming broadcaster, but also races occasionally, and he was the host. And we really just kind of just talked for an hour about John and his life and about racing. And we took – I think we have – we ended up answering about 25 of the questions from the fans and – uh, it was cool for me. It was like sitting around with a beer with these guys just telling stories. So, and uh, I, I think we're going to do more of that. Uh, might do some media stuff uh, that is not restricted only to the pre-orders, but uh, uh, working on that now on possibly doing some more fun things with some pretty big names that uh, that meant a lot to John. All right. Now, uh, Jay, you are active on social media. Folks can find you on both Facebook and Twitter. Uh, so if, if, yes. if, you know, you can go ahead and follow Jade on Twitter if you want to see if any of these other events are going to be coming up. And, Jade, I really appreciate you coming on, uh, and I wish you the best of luck. Uh, we've got about four minutes left in the show. And, Seth and Louise, I, I told you I'd let you all talk about Bubba Wallace, so you got two minutes apiece. <clears throat> well, first off, what happened with Bubba Wallace, uh, to set the timeline – on Sunday, a crew member of his found a garage uh, pull rope that was tied in the fashion of a noose. He notified the crew chief, who notified uh, NASCAR, who then started an investigation and went to uh, local law enforcement, who brought in the FBI, thinking it was a hate crime. Uh, Bubba Wallace was informed later because drivers are not allowed in the garage due to the COVID-19 uh, situation. Uh, NASCAR made a statement that uh, Jimmy Johnson and Kevin Harvick organized a show of unity uh, pre-race uh, on Monday. Uh, after that, on Tuesday, uh, it came out that the pull rope had been tied in that fashion since at least October of last year, when Paul Menard was in that very same uh, garage stall. Uh, these garage stalls are new. They were built between the Talladega races last year. Uh, otherwise, Bubba did nothing wrong. Uh, RPM did nothing wrong. That was the only pull rope tied in that fashion at the track. The FBI, uh, in their statement, stated it was fashioned like a noose, uh, and NASCAR was in a no-win situation. Some people say they jumped the gun. Some people say they uh, blew it out of proportion. If NASCAR had tried to hide this and keep it secret and then you know, say everything afterwards, if it had leaked out, it would have been a mess. So no matter what this was going to be a lose-lose situation unless it was actually intended to target Bubba. That being said, it still doesn't explain why it was tied like a noose or why on Saturday a noose was found hanging from a tree at Sonoma Raceway. Yeah, this whole thing is it's brought out the best in some people when, when, when you can see the, you know, the show of solidarity or the show of support from the other drivers. And it's brought out the worst in some people with some of the uh, – comments that i've read on social media that i just i just find very disturbing so uh and, and, and you know anyone that you know everyone wants to call bubba uh jesse smollett and um you know say that uh, he somehow planned this hoax to drive publicity himself i i think they're way off base and i i find it quite deplorable so uh, uh louise you got 20 seconds that's all that's, honestly it's all, all I you need, need but boy it's just I have no, I have no comment. Well, due to the fact that it's just a, I can't fully describe the word other than just one phrase. It's just a ping pong effect of just mixed emotions. That's all I got to say about that. My mindset is just focusing on the race at hand of Pocono. Yeah, yeah. Let's go to Pocono. One of my, one of my favorite tracks on the schedule. So, uh, but with that, guys, we're out of time. So I want to thank you, uh, Seth, Richard, Louise, Jade. 
Jay Gersh, thank you so much for coming on again. You folks that uh, listen to us, uh, thank you. Uh, look up, uh, look up Jade on Twitter. Follow him. Um, buy the book. It's called Racer, uh, the autobiography of John Andretti as told to Jade Gersh. Uh, I want to thank the Hoobazoo Radio Network. I want to thank Spreaker, iHeartRadio, and Google Podcast. And I want, especially want to thank you folks who listen to us week in and week out. Um, until next week, good night. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.